The Alaska Powerline podcast is generously supported by GenPack. As a stocking electric utility distributor, GenPack has taken care of customers in the Pacific Northwest since 1965. With a strong customer focus and dedicated sales staff, they have built lasting relationships by providing quality products with value-added services. Now with a new Anchorage warehouse and a dedicated Alaska sales and support team, GenPack is ready to take care of their Alaska customers for years to come. Visit them at www.genpac.com for more information. GenPack, taking care of our customers since 1965. Welcome to Alaska Powerline, the podcast of Alaska Power Association, the statewide trade association for electric utilities in Alaska. On Alaska Powerline, we talk about issues facing Alaska's electric utilities, interview a wide range of guests, and demystify what it takes to provide power in the last frontier. Welcome back to the Alaska Powerline podcast. I'm Michael Ravito, Deputy Director of Alaska Power Association. We're excited to be joined on the podcast today by Curtis Thayer, the Executive Director of the Alaska Energy Authority. Curtis, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to, good to be talking to you here this afternoon. So I think first off, just for folks who don't know, can you just tell me who is the Alaska Energy Authority and exactly what do you do there? Well, um, the AEA, as we refer to ourselves as the state's energy office and lead agency for statewide energy policy and program development. Uh, our mission is to reduce the cost of energy in Alaska, and we, we strive to achieve that mission uh, to diversify Alaska's energy portfolio by increasing resilience, reliability, and redundancy, not only in urban Alaska, but also in rural Alaska. That sounds like a, a lot of stuff going on over there. How many people do you have on staff at AEA? <laughs> well, that's interesting. We have about 30 people um, in what we call the front office as far as engineers and project managers. And then we have about 20 people which are behind the scenes. We, we share some of our employees with a sister state agency, ADA, some of our IT, HR functions, some of the accounting functions. So we're actually a relatively small uh, employee-wise, but we have grown tremendously in our our influx of, of, of federal dollars and state matching dollars these last uh, four years. Yeah, I'll say. So I think every state, um, if not almost every state, has a state energy office. And essentially, that's what AEA is, correct? Yes, we are the state energy office. We're unique from other energy offices because we actually own assets, uh, we own the state's largest hydro project. We own the majority of the transmission lines between uh, between uh, Bradley Lake and Fairbanks. Okay, so that's uh, so you're some asset owners. So you're really, I mean, not a, not an electric utility, obviously, but you're definitely an owner of of um, infrastructure that gives power or sends power to electric utilities. Well, just to put it in a little bit of context, which I I think is interesting, and that is is we are actually larger than the Alaska Railroad. When you look at our net book value of the assets that we manage and, and have in-house. And when you kind of look at the railroad and the huge footprint they have, and then here AEA has has a, even a larger footprint than that in the state. Okay. No, that's that's a lot of responsibility over there for uh, for the state. And, and the state is, is big. You mentioned here at the top that, uh, you know, you work in urban and rural Alaska and, and across the state, actually. What does, what does AEA do to support rural Alaska? What are some of the, the programs and activities that you do out there? Our, our two biggest is the powerhouses and bulk fuel facilities. The powerhouses uh, are really the backbone into rural Alaska. And 
you know, interestingly enough, our by statute, it says we may, but we for the last 40 years have taken the position of shall in the sense of being responsible uh, for building new powerhouses, installing them in rural Alaska, doing the training on them. Uh, some of those powerhouses in those communities are tied in with a larger like AVEC or another large electrical utility or electrical utility co-op. But there's about four, 40 communities out there that we are their 911 call if they have a problem. And so we have that. And then the bulk fuel facilities where we're constantly looking at upgrading uh, the bulk fuel because you need the bulk fuel, obviously, for the powerhouses. Um, and so they go hand in hand. But those are our two. Plus, we have the power cost equalization program, which is a state program that helps subsidize rural Alaska for the first 750 kilowatts. They pay the same rate as as basically Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Juneau pay on a weighted average. So it's about 20 cents um, to try to keep those costs low in rural Alaska. Um, and so our average is about, so if a community is paying 80 cents a kilowatt, that PCE will, will cover 60%, 60 cents of that. And they'll only pay the 20, 20 cents. Uh, so that, that program is about a $45 million program a year. Yeah, that's a really important program, and we've actually covered that on the podcast before. So hopefully the listeners were paying attention and they know all about the PC program. Um, you mentioned that AEA is kind of like the 911 for rural Alaska. How does that work? I mean, how do you interface with a, a community that may be having like a problem at their electric utility out there? Well, like I said, uh, you know, the majority of the communities in rural Alaska are tied to you know AVAC or IPP or, or some other uh, some other type of co-op. But these smaller communities um, where it's usually a clerk and, and, a, and, and they might have somebody in the powerhouse, um, and those are the ones that we kind of focus on. But like right now, we, we, have a, we have an electrical emergency in one of the communities where their generators are down. And so we actually flew people out uh, today. Uh, hopefully they're back by Christmas uh, hmm. to go out there and see if they can get the power back on and what they need in the sense of, of parts or if we need to fly out a generator or something for them to provide power for the community. It doesn't happen often, um, but we, we just happen to be the one that, that, that they could depend on a call. And that's, that's why we're going out there today. Yeah. It sounds like a very Alaska thing to kind of pull together and, you know, get resources and help from other parts of the state to come out and try to get a community back on the right footing. Well, we, we have a program we call circuit rider and these are, these are four guys that, to travel to rural Alaska, doing training, doing installs, uh, helping um, helping when they commission a new plant or powerhouse, um, and uh, they're traveling throughout Alaska and they sleep sleep on gym room floors and and miss flights and get weathered in. And these four guys are committed to do this every day, every week, uh, 52 weeks of the year. And so we got a really dedicated crew here, four guys that uh, really make a difference in rural Alaska. Yeah, that's great. What a crew. I bet folks out in rural Alaska are just really happy when they see them getting off the plane to come and fix a problem out there. <laughs> yeah, because most likely when they show up, there's a problem. So there's hopefully a problem, yeah. the power is going to be back on or, or something. Yeah. And can you speak a little bit? Um, a lot of rural Alaska has a variety of uh, tank farms, bulk fuel tank farms for in different ages and different conditions. Can you talk a little bit about what AEA does to support the uh, the bulk fuel tank farms out in these communities? Yeah, what we have is we we get our funding from the legislature, and then we have it. We partnered up with the federal government, Denali Commission, and other sources of funding, 
And, and the feds and the federal government usually will match 50 to 80%, depending on the community. And so what we're able to do is um, rebuild uh, new powerhouses, in some case, provide new powerhouses. We, we have the powerhouses built here in Anchorage and we ship them out to rural Alaska. Um, and then another one is the tank farms themselves. Sometimes we can do direct um, replacement, but some of it's just doing the routine maintenance uh, O&M operation and maintenance on, on a particular tank farm. Um, what we've estimated is powerhouses where there's about a $300 million liability in the sense we're behind and, and power and bulk fuel is 800 million. So we have a, so we have over a billion dollars in rural Alaska of deferred maintenance and this deferred maintenance by no stretch of the imagination happened in the last year or five years. It, it's really accumulation of the last 20 years. Uh, we're just not keeping up with the need for new powerhouses with, the, as you know, you got 194 communities in rural Alaska. If you were to do five a year, you're still going to be behind in 20 years. And so that that's an ongoing challenge that we, that we have in rural Alaska. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And, and I think just for the listeners, the importance of a bulk fuel tank farm out in rural Alaska is a lot of the communities are uh, using diesel to generate their power, though they're working to lower that reliance on diesel by diversifying, but still the reality is a lot of them are on diesel. So they need high quality fuel tanks to hold that diesel so they can have power uh, throughout the year, right? No, you, you hit it right on the head. You know, there's, you know, we, we do a lot with trying to help communities move towards renewable uh, through various grants and, and, and um, matching federal funding. Uh, primarily, you know, wind and now solar is becoming more prominent in rural Alaska. But again, you still need that backbone that when the sun doesn't shine or the wind stops blowing, the lights still need to work. And that falls back to a diesel generator powerhouse right now. Um, and I think it's going to continue that for a long time. We just need to reduce the, redu- the, the reliance on it. But again, um, you know, when we do some biomass uh, where there's rivers, there's some there's some early setting of rivers and and um, we, we support along the coastal coastal areas of Alaska for hydro and that. But again, if you're in rural Alaska and, you know, certain areas of rural Alaska, there's no trees and the river's frozen. There, there are options for renewable are really limited, uh, especially because nor- by that time you're north of the Arctic Circle, so you don't have a lot of daylight in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So it's just getting that right mix uh, for communities. And when we, when we go out to rural Alaska and we install a new generator, we try to get the most, we put the most efficient one out there. And usually we're in- increasing efficiency by 20 to, to 30 percent. So we're making a conscious effort to do that. Um, yeah, and that, that efficiency is probably going to help with cost in the long run, too. It, it is. And, the, and, the, and like for bulk fuel tanks, one of the things we're trying to do is size them appropriately because sometimes, you know, I, I would say, but in the past, the, the, the needs of the, of the community for needing bulk fuel, necessarily we didn't, the, 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 right, uh, the right bulk fuel facilities were not installed. So, which we don't want to do is have a position where you have to fly in bulk fuel in the wintertime or, or, or anything, the cost is astronomical. It, it just, it, it, it completely doesn't make sense. So we want to make sure we size them for the community so the fall barges can come in and, and, and uh, replace them, replace the fuel, and they were not going to run out in the course of the winter. Yeah, it's like kind of the uh, axiom of Alaska. If you you got to prepare for winter because you don't want to be stuck in a bad situation when everything's frozen solid and the weather is nasty, and so you want to try to get it right before all that happens. And one thing that we did, one thing that AEA did, and I'm really, really 
proud of the team. They did an inventory and assessment where they actually, between our team and with contractors, we evaluated every powerhouse in the state. 194 communities went to 194, did 3D modeling of them, got all the information off the generators, everything on the manuals. It's all online. So if they have a problem in a community, we can zoom in and be seeing the same thing the tech in the community is looking at, which actually saves our guys from having to go to the field, but we can handle more issues because they kind of have a central place where here in Anchorage, we can see that. And if we need to, we get on a plane and, and, and we, we help that community out. But if they, but it, it's, and now we've taken that same uh, technology and, and inventory and assessment, but we're doing that with bulk fuel and bulk fuel is almost 400 facilities in rural Alaska. And we're working with the Coast Guard um, rather than, you know, the Coast Guard, we, we, the Coast Guard, we didn't want to necessarily be an enforcement by the Coast Guard, but to work with them on looking to see the inventory and the assessment. So from a regulatory side, how we can help them and, and be, co be Coast Guard compliant, because so many of these bulk fuel tanks are obviously near waterways, because that's how we refuel them is by barge. Yeah, that's really important stuff. And Curtis, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, you said renewable energy. And I wanted to real quick see if you could talk about the Renewable Energy Fund that AEA administers. And I know there's, I think we're on round maybe 16, correct me if I'm wrong, 16. that they're looking for yeah. projects. But what, what is the Renewable Energy Fund and, and how does it work and how is it improving things in Alaska? Well, the, the Renewable Energy Fund was created about 15 years ago by the legislature and was funded rather robustly, I will say. And, and then, um, you know, the state, the state um, you know, had financial issues. And when we had the financial issues, the state didn't fund the Renewable Energy Fund for about five years. And, and we're in 16, and we started around 13 with Governor Dunleavy. We originally started with like 40, I think 11 projects, and it's 4.7 million. And then the second year, we 15 million funded 28. But what, that, what the whole goal of the Renewable Energy Fund is to is we, we solicit applications, we, we grade applications, but it's really to help communities in the early feasibility study when they're in, in design and looking at different projects. And we're agnostic to the, to the type of renewable it is, but it has to be a cost savings for the community and over 80%. And the state so far has spent uh, well over $300 million on this project, which mm -hmm. has garnered over $400 million of federal money or matching money into this program. So it's, it's huge for the communities. But with that, um, it, it, it helps us fund these early projects. We have 100 active projects that started with the Renewable Energy Fund. And we just recently are going to uh, receive and we'll be releasing after the first of the year. But we had an independent third party look to see about the Renewable Energy Program and how successful it's been. And since its inception, it's displaced 85 million gallons Dang. of diesel. That's 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 just game changer for it, and and really where we can look at these communities that help fund their solar or their wind, where they could then take the next step and get it financed or get federal money for it or maybe another state grant, um, and it's really from like I said from Ketchikan all the way to the North Slope, but over eighty percent of it went into rural Alaska, and it's just it's been a huge huge program. We're currently in round sixteen. Um, we have a renewable energy committee. Um, advisory committee that's going to be looking at those applications or looking at those applications and, and um, we'll be making a recommendation to the legislature right after the, I think the meeting is on the 9th of January. So we'll be meeting, making recommendations for the legislature to fund it. 
The governor has a placeholder in his budget uh, for some money. Last year, the, the legislature added money to that number. Um, but we, we have a request of about $35 million. It's a lot of money. Um, but these are great programs. And so we'll, we'll take the test of time as far as uh, the legislature and seeing what, what renewables they can afford to, to support this year. Yeah, it's a great program. I know a number of APA's electric utility members have received renewable energy fund grants, and it's been really helpful to them, like you said, in the early stages of these projects to look at feasibility or other aspects that add to the cost, but they're they're crucially important to maybe um, go and get additional funding based on the feasibility studies or, or other investment. And of course, a- APA has one of our policy positions for 2024 is full funding of the renewable energy fund projects. So we're going to be advocating for that as well. No. And, and, you know, we've had a couple of things. It's interesting. Um, there's been a couple of bills in the legislature, the carbon credits uh, recently passed that, you know, 20% of this, that what we would earn out of carbon credits would go into the renewable energy fund. So actually we haven't seen money from that yet, but there's actually, the legislature has been supportive of finding mechanisms to help fund this in the future that if, if certain legislation is successful, then there's actually a benefit to the renewable energy fund. Yeah, no, it's a great program. And speaking of money, I want to get onto some big news that came out uh, quite recently, which was that AEA received a grant to the tune of $206.5 million from the United States Department of Energy for grid resilience and innovation partnerships, uh, lovingly known as the GRIP program. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the grant, how it came to be, and, and what it means for Alaska and the Rail Belt region? Well, it is, it is a complete uh, transformational change on how we operate the, the Rail Belt uh, completely. Um, this, was, this was money that was available we work very closely with the rail belt utilities and also the city of, of Seward in putting a grant together and submitting it. And you know, to kind of put it in perspective, there were 700 applications. We were one of 58 selected. And then of the 58, we received the fifth highest amount of dollars from DOE for this cycle. Nice. And so when you put that together, I think it's as close to winning the lottery as you can get. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, with with federal funding, but what this what the purpose of the this to, is to do is the is officially the Rail Belt Innovation Resilience Project. But one of the key factors in that is is to uh, construct a high uh, an HVDC line, a high voltage direct current line uh, from Kenai across the inlet over to Beluga, and move power a second have it a second way off the the Kenai Peninsula. You know, most recently. We've had the fire down at, at um, uh, Swan Lake Fire, which caused us to be without Bradley Power for four months. Mm-hmm. If we want to introduce, our, our lines are constrained off the Kenai. We cannot move as much power as Bradley can produce. And we want to, ex- we, there's ways that we feel that we can expand Bradley uh, by 2030 and increase it by 50%. There's solar opportunities, wind opportunities, there's, there's uh, tidal opportunities, but we don't have the transmission system to move it forward. Our transmission system was built in the 1970s down on the Kenai Peninsula. So we haven't, there's been no major upgrade for 50 years. And so what this will do is allow for that second line to go off the Kenai to give us two routings and the redundancy that we need uh, off the Kenai 
And so that funding is for that. It does require a match of $206.5 million. So it's a $413 million project. And then also it includes batteries or BESIS system, battery storage uh, in Anchorage and in Fairbanks as part of the grant money. So it, it definitely is a game changer because Bradley costs well over $300 million to build, you know, over 30 years ago. And so this is going to be the largest influx of, of dollars um, to help rebuild the rail belt in literally over 30 years. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out, well, first of all, this is extremely exciting, especially for a guy like me who lives on the rail belt. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I, I want to just clarify a few things for the listeners, just so everyone knows Bradley Lake, um, you could talk a little bit about this, Curtis, is a, is a hydroelectric project across from Homer, across Catchmack Bay from Homer um, that was constructed uh, in the 80s, I believe, correct? Yeah, finished up in the early 90s, but yes, it, it was. It's the it's a 120 megawatt power plant, um, 28 miles from Homer, and it provides 10% of all the power on the rail belt. Uh, it's done on a and different utilities have different uh, different rates. It depends how much they pay into Bradley. Um, but for example, a Golden Valley receives 17% of the power from Bradley goes to Golden Valley Electric and Fairbanks, and so 600 miles away. Here's a power plant supplying Fairbanks. Um, and so that's why it's so important to get the transmission lines updated so we can prevent line loss and more efficiently move that power to the various communities along the rail belt. And, and the one thing I will say too is where like the PCE, like I mentioned with the PCE program, if the cost on the rail belt decreases, then the formula, the statutory formula for PCE actually increases what is put into rural Alaska. And about every penny, every penny it goes down on the rail belt is another million, million and a half dollars that can go into rural Alaska for their PCE program. That's just the, the, the formula that is set up. So it is a win-win, not only for the rail belt, but for rural Alaska too, if we can lower the cost. Yeah, that's a good example to show how the state is really connected to each other, whether you live in rural Alaska or along the rail belt, everything's kind of connected. And And just to point out for folks who are listening, um, about the transmission system, I think it's, and let me know if I'm right on this one, but it's good to think of the transmission lines that you see overhead as, as almost like a highway, like in a car, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have, if you have a lot of cars, but too few lanes, things move very slowly. And if that one highway goes down, the traffic goes nowhere. And I think it's similar with a transmission line where you have this, uh, this source of power, Bradley Lake down across from Homer, that needs to move large quantities of power north to the people who are using it, both on the Kenai and in in Anchorage and the Matsu region up the Fairbanks. But it needs both a sufficiently sized highway, so to speak, and redundancy in case one of those arteries should go down. Is that a good way to characterize it? No, you you you, you yeah, you're right. On, you're right on target. The one thing that's interesting is. In the lower 48, uh, they're governed by FERC. We're not we're not interstate, so we're not governed by FERC. But but the Federal Regulatory Commission they would actually require to have two lines to have redundant lines. And for us, you know, we have a long extension cord uh, between between Bradley and Fairbanks. And so th- this this is huge as far as moving more power because it's going to move it is it, but without with preventing line loss and being able to add more renewables on. We hopefully can lower the cost, and then that's going to l- and lower our dependency on natural gas uh, if we can get more renewables on. So it, it really makes a difference. And then the next phase is to actually look at going from Beluga, which is across the inlet, up to Healy, 
And then at Healy, Golden Valley has two lines that go north that service their territory. And so it would be a secondary line. It would be owned by AEA. Since we're responsible, we got to receive the grant money, it'd be owned by AEA. Um, but we work with the utilities every day. We have a good working relationship, haven't had any issues, don't expect any issues. Uh, and they've been 100% supportive of, of this need. And um, like I said, if it wasn't for the collaborative partnership with the utilities, I don't think we would have been successful in the grant. Yeah, it's a really, really important project. And, and I always tell folks who might not know or from folks from out of the state, Alaska's power system is unique because in the lower 48, you have these large regional systems that connect utilities to each other or even connect other states to each other. But Alaska just does not have that. Our state is not connected to any other state. We're not connected to Canada. And most communities in Alaska are not interconnected to any other community. They're standalone power systems. And so something like this that the state and the railroad utilities are working on to provide that really needed redundancy is, is probably a big game changer up here. No, it, 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 is, it has been the desire, I think, of, the, of AEA or the state and, and the utilities for a long time. But how do you find yourself $400 million to do this type of upgrade? And so when the opportunity was given that, that we potentially could get a grant for half of that money, and then we were successful in it, it just completely changed the, the playing field of what we thought the art of the possible was. Yeah, no, this is this is a big opportunity. And Curtis, just with the little bit of time we have left, one of the um, other projects related to Bradley Lake that people hear about is the Dixon Diversion Project. Mm-hmm. And it's been in the news and people talk about it. Can you just tell us what is a Dixon Diversion Project and what will it mean to Bradley Lake? Yeah, the Dixon Diversion is that you, if you look at the, as I say, the Bradley footprint, there is a similar glacier. Bradley Lake is a glacier, uh, lake, and then river. And Five miles away, there's the similar makeup, and the glacier is receding, so the lake is now formed, and and then we have a river. And we want a directional drill, do a diversion five miles away, a directional drill, and a 13-foot tunnel, and put it into Bradley Lake and raise the dam level there to get more water behind Bradley. Um, and we feel we could that will electrify, that'll be a 50% increase, which is about 28,000 homes. Um, when you talk about directional drilling, you kind of you, people kind of roll your eyes and, and kind of look, well, how can you do that? Well, Bradley Lake, 32 years ago, we directionally drilled from Bradley to the powerhouse two and a half miles. So the technology's there. Um, and actually, when we're looking at the cost of this, the cost, interestingly enough, even with inflation, we've found ways to lower the cost of some of our uh, original estimates. And so we believe that this is not only cost effective, um, but it's an amendment to our FERC license that this possibly could be in operation by 2030, which is kind of unheard of. But we've got to have those transmission lines upgraded at the same time so we can move that power efficiently to the uh, to the utilities and to the rail bill. Yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand. If you can increase the uh, power output out power output of Bradley and have those additional transmission lines in it will be advantageous. And speaking of the timeline for the transmission lines, do you know how many years is that project? What's the estimate to get that? If everything goes to plan, um, yep. what's the estimate to get that done? <laughs> I, I smile a little bit on that one because the Department of Energy says the project has to be completed in eight years. Oh, so wow. the answer is eight years. <laughs> uh, but but until we are able to do some engineering and do some of our um, site selection and a few things like that. That's going to give us a better idea. But I think I think one of our biggest things that we're going to hamper be hampered on is the HVDC cable. 
Um, there are, my understanding, five different projects in the country currently using that or in, in construction, and there's 30 in Europe. And there's only a couple of sources for that for that HVDC line. So that's one of our biggest pieces is is supply chain logistics. Uh, but eight years is what is what the grant has it for it. But I'm sure that if we are in line for Q for getting it sooner, maybe getting it later, that's going to be hampering is to make sure that we can find 50 miles of, of cable. Yeah, and ho- hopefully DOE and and the federal government can be a little bit flexible on the some of the realities with supply chain and other issues. That and I hope they're flexible on permitting too. They like yeah. to they like to make a lot of money available, but their their permitting you know, often oftentimes slows us down. Yeah, no, no, no doubt that could be a whole another podcast right there. Actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Curtis, AEA does a lot of stuff, and we've we've had a great conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about AEA that we haven't talked about yet in the few minutes we have left? Um, I think we've covered a lot of it. You know, I, you know, the one thing more than anything else um, is. What we try to do is work with the communities, um, you know, whether it be rural Alaska or urban Alaska, we have teams focused on it. They're dedicated folks. Um, and I will just say that I, I think that AEA has kind of hit the ball out of the ballpark the last couple of years, just to kind of put it in perspective. Our capital budget grew 142% over last year, which does not include the, the grip funding. And for the last Four years, our budget, ha- our, our capital expenses, putting money into rural Alaska and urban Alaska has grown 1,004%. So when you look at our capital budget where we were to where we are, again, not counting the GRIP funding because mm-hmm. the state hasn't formally accepted it, um, you're seeing major changes and positive changes that for, for I would say, hasn't happened in, in a generation or more. Yeah, and it seems like that might... Um speak to the energy transition and just some of the advancements that are being made across the state in terms of electric energy. Exactly. You know, this could not be done without the support of the governor, the congressional delegation, the legislature, our, our board of directors and, and the employees and, and everybody that we serve. Uh, like I said, the railroad utilities, they've been awesome partners in rural Alaska. They've been great partners. It's just like we're hitting on all cylinders, so to speak. Um, there, there's a fossil fuel analogy for you, um, <laughs> but, but we're hitting on all cylinders and just knocking it out of the park. And, and it's just the sun is shining right now on us. And, and we just got a lot to, a lot of work to do. We have over, when you, when we calculated everything up the other day, we have almost $1.4 billion of projects in the pipeline. Wow. That's amazing. It's an exciting time for uh, an exciting time for Alaska, but an exciting time for electric energy. And, and you guys are real busy over there, Curtis. I hope you get some time off here at the holidays, the end of the year. <laughs> I, I know the team's taking some time off. And uh, and one thing I will just say in closing, I know we're wrapping up, but um, you know we worked on, AEA was intimately involved and the governor had asked us to do the state energy uh, task force. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is out on our website and um, and that's people should take a look at it. There's over 2,000 pages of information that partnered with 20 people from across the state came together. Uh, the smaller version is about 170 of various recommendations. Uh, we don't think all the recommendations, you know, are going to be implemented the first time, but it really gives you a kind of an a la carte menu of what our options in Alaska are across the state to look how we can affect and lower that cost of energy. 
Yeah, and if you're interested in that, uh, akenergyauthority.org is the Alaska Energy Authority's website. So, or just Google Alaska Energy Authority, and they they got a wealth of information on their website. One thing that we've done too is we've also created a data library, and that's available publicly facing of all of these energy reports and all the work. We have over 7,500 documents now available for people to look at on everything that we've done, and we're adding to them literally weekly. Uh, by the time it's all over, there'll be 15,000 documents, but you know, this is all stuff that's been been stored in a, in, a, in a dusty room that we've now digitized and are making available to the public just because it was all public money to start with. So it should all be publicly available. And that's been our so look, look to that also. And it's also on our website, the, our data library. Great. Yeah, if you want to take a deep dive into the AEA uh, archives there, go ahead and do it digitally over your holiday weekends. <laughs> so. <laughs> Curtis, well, thanks a lot for for coming on the podcast. It was really interesting. And like I said, you guys are doing some exciting stuff and very busy over there. So we really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you, APA, for everything that you do for us. Thank you. So we've been talking to Curtis Thayer, the Executive Director of the Alaska Energy Authority. This was the Alaska Powerline Podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode.